Father, we delight that we have a solid rock on which we stand, that all is well for us because of Christ. And we thank you that we get to study him this morning. And we ask, Father, that you would come meet with us, or that your spirit would be at work within us to illumine our hearts and our eyes to see wonderful things in this passage. Lord, we thank you that here we find our Lord uh, defending the truth of your word of the gospel by faith alone. Lord, we thank you that our salvation hinges not upon our own abilities, but upon Christ alone and his work. Thank you that we have in him a perfect righteousness that exceeds any righteousness we could have ever attained by our own efforts. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us, help us to see him clearly, help us to see what is ours in Christ, and help us, by your grace, to be changed by your word and to live lives that are peculiar, different in this world as salt and light. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 22 uh, in our time this morning. There is a lot to cover and a lot that we still have yet to do in this hour or so together. And so I want to get straight to the point. And the question I want us to answer this morning as we work through this text It might sound like something of a joke to you, but I think it's the question this text wants to answer for us. So here it is. Why are Christ's disciples Christians? Why are Christ's disciples so odd? Why are Christ's disciples so odd? What is it about us that makes us unusual, different, peculiar? What is it about Christians that makes them prone to nonconformity? What is it about us that prevents us from just fitting in? Well, you, you could answer that question a number of ways, I'm sure. Um, but Jesus answers the question for us in our text this morning. And he gives us two reasons that we'll see. The first, the first reason that Christians live odd lives or why we're so different is because we understand the nature of Christ's first advent. The second is because we understand the nature of the new covenant. What we're going to see in this passage is that these two realities are what undergird the oddity of Christ's disciples. Insofar as disciples understand these two concepts, these two realities, the nature of the first coming or advent and the nature of the new covenant, Jesus' followers will necessarily live peculiar lives. And so, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in verse 18, Mark chapter 2, 
in verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Amen. You can be seated. Now we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 2 of Mark. I've noted several times that in Mark chapter 2, really starting in chapter 2 verse 1, going to chapter 3 verse 6, there is a rising tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it says every scene, the temperature is just sort of turned up a bit, and it finally culminates in chapter 3 verse 6 where we read that the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. There are five episodes in chapter 2 that culminate in chapter 3, verse 6, with this plot essentially to kill Jesus. And so we find ourselves situated right in the middle of this passage, and, and this morning we're in verses 18 to 22, and the thing that has sort of ruffled the feathers of the Pharisees uh, is rather, probably we should back up to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Verse 1 through chapter 12. What was it that ruffled the Pharisees and the scribes? What was it that got them worked up then? Well, it was the healing of a paralytic. And Jesus unilaterally declaring this man's sins to be pardoned. Only God can do that. Jesus uh, is blaspheming, they said. Because only God can forgive Sins, But here Jesus declares this man's sins forgiven, and they hate him for that. And then last time we were together, we saw in verses 14 to 17, they also hated that Jesus called Levi, the tax collector, to be part of his group. And not only that, he was feasting with them in their house. He hated, they hated rather, that Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And now, this morning, we come to verse 18, where we're going to see that they also don't like that Jesus' disciples are not fasting. They're not doing what the disciples of John and the Pharisees are doing. And we'll unpack that as we move along. But let's get started in verse 18. The The beginning of verse 18 really sets up the context for the entire passage. Apparently, in God's providence, the call of Levi happened on the same day that the Pharisees were observing one of their fasts. 
And it just so happened that the disciples of John the Baptist were also fasting. And now, these two groups just so happened to be the holiest people in all of Galilee. And here they are, these two groups of people, the disciples of John, and we'll look at them in just a minute, and the Pharisees, here they are fasting. And what are Jesus' disciples doing? They're feasting. There's a strong contrast here, but we need to look at the Pharisees and then look at the disciples of John. First, the Pharisees. You'll remember that they were known for their personal holiness. They were the separated ones what their name meant. They were overly scrupulous, even tithing on their herbs. And anyone who knew the Pharisees knew how serious they were about personal holiness. That's the first group. The second group is identified in verse 18 as the disciples of John. Now that's John the Baptist. You'll remember him from chapter 1 as the promised messenger of the Messiah. He was the one who went before Jesus. He was the strange man out in the wilderness, declared that Jesus was the Messiah, prepared the way for him to come, preached the truth, preached repentance, called the nation to turn from their sins and, and embrace the promised Messiah. And you remember in, John, in Mark 1, the entire country of Judea and the whole city of Jerusalem was coming out to this man to hear him preach. And the culmination of John's ministry, really, maybe the highlight of his entire life, was he had the privilege of baptizing Jesus. Remember, he baptizes Jesus, and in John 1, we're told that as he baptized him, John knew that this man he was baptizing was, in fact, the Messiah. And so he says in John 1.32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the one on whom you see the dove descend, the Spirit descend, this is the promised Messiah. And John Then on the next day, standing with his disciples, and he looks and he sees Jesus walking by, and you remember what he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, interestingly, the next verse says, Two of John's disciples heard him say this, and they go and follow Jesus. John doesn't stop them and say, Hey, 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 don't go follow this guy. No, he he encourages it. He points to the Messiah. And the whole plan of John the Baptist's ministry was to transition all of his disciples over to Jesus. That was the proper transition. It was his design. In fact, God had a design to really bring John the Baptist off the scene. Remember, in God's providence, uh, John the Baptist's ministry would be to disappear But he wouldn't just sort of disappear out in the wilderness. Look at Mark 1 and verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, it was God's plan that John, in order to get him out of the way, this powerhouse preacher, 
to make room for Jesus. It was God's plan that John the Baptist would be imprisoned and then martyred. And apparently, John's disciples, many of them did cross over and follow Jesus, but according to chapter 2, verse 18, there were still many of John's disciples who didn't actually follow Jesus. Some of them did, some of them didn't. We don't know why they didn't, uh, but apparently they didn't. And at some point, they sort of band up, banded up with the Pharisees. And, and they come together, and in verse 18, they're fasting. Now, John's disciples perhaps are fasting because their leader is in prison. And maybe they're fasting and praying that John would be released. We don't know. But the Pharisees are fasting because this was part of their ritual. We'll see that God had only prescribed, uh, you remember in the book of Leviticus, He had only prescribed one fast for His people. One fast per year. Later on in history, after the Babylonian captivity, there were four more fasts that would come along. And so that's essentially five fasts that God had instructed His people to observe. Now, knowing the Pharisees, uh, you won't be surprised that they were a little more committed uh, to fasting than the Lord God was Himself. And so, rather than one or five uh, fasting seasons of fasting per year, the Pharisees actually had decreed by their tradition that you would fast twice a week, <laughs> right? So they had fasts twice a week on Tuesday and Thursday. And apparently, this was one of those days, and John's disciples were fasting and praying, perhaps, and the Pharisees were fasting and praying. And you remember how Jesus described the Pharisees when they fasted. They made their face disfigured and gloomy, and everyone could see that they were fasting and, and Jesus said this was the way that they were rewarded. This was their heaven on earth, was the reward they got for, from men for their righteousness. Well, the crowds then were able to look at these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, and they were able to see, well, here are two groups of holy people, fasting, dedicated to their leader, holy, righteous, exemplary in all these ways. And they're looking and they see the two groups and then there's a third group that sort of pops up. And that's Jesus and His disciples. And while these two holy groups are fasting, Jesus and His disciples are essentially coming out of the banquet hall of a tax collector. Right? They have been drinking, celebrating, rejoicing, feasting all night long perhaps, and now they come and they essentially, you know, the image in my mind essentially is they walk out and here are these two groups of fasting, holy, righteous people. And then Jesus walks with his group between them. It's a striking contrast. Why Jesus, they say, are the disciples of John, we know they're holy, we know they're godly, why are they fasting? And the disciples of the Pharisees, we know they're holy and they're, they're godly and they're fasting, why, Jesus, do your disciples not fit in? Why are they not conforming to the standards of holiness that the Pharisees have exalted? Well, 
That sort of sets the context for Jesus' answer in verse 19. Let's look what he says. Verse 19, And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So the crowd, which is probably disciples of the Pharisees and disciples of John, mixed together, they see that Jesus' disciples are peculiar. They're different. They're not like the other holy groups. And they're curious, and so they ask the question, why are they different? Why are your disciples, Jesus, behaving so strange? And Jesus gives them an analogy. And the, the way the question is asked here, Jesus says, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? Question mark. That's a question. But the way the question is asked implies an obvious no. Of course not. They can't fast at a wedding. If they're, especially rather, they won't be fasting if they are attendants of the bridegroom. Now your text may say guests of the wedding. It says, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom or the guests cannot fast, can they? Now, the attendants of the groom or the bridegroom is literally the sons of the bridal hall. The sons of the bridal hall. Which is another way of saying the friends of the groom. The friends of the groom. Now, how think about a wedding. How do groomsmen typically act at a wedding? Some of you are laughing. <laughs> typically, the friends of the groom are the crazy ones. Isn't that right? They typically are. They're the craziest people at the wedding, and you have to sort of calm them down and make sure they don't do anything irrational. Right? That's the job of the one uh, officiating the wedding, is control the, the groomsmen, essentially. And you know what's really striking is, as I read about weddings this week, um, it reminded me that people don't change. Uh, groomsmen have always been a problem. Um, you read about Jewish weddings in the first century. Uh, these were big, elaborate things, right? This was not a 10-minute a ceremony with a two-hour reception, right? A Jewish wedding, uh, weddings of the ancient Near East, usually lasted upwards of seven days or 14 days, so a week to two weeks. And the groomsmen, it was funny reading about them, the groomsmen would often be led down, or the groom, rather, would be led down the streets of the city in an elaborate procession where his friends, the friends of the groom, would celebrate the groom with tambourines and other instruments and dancing and song. It was like a, a giant parade, essentially, where these groomsmen are just dancing around the groom, celebrating this man who was their friend who was about to be married. It was an elaborate week of celebration, and it was an elaborate week of feasting. Fasting was unheard of. And the groomsmen, and maybe we should bring this back, maybe this would help us control groomsmen, give them an opportunity to just run down the street and celebrate their friend, and they burn all their energy, and then they're fine. But here, 
in the first century, the wedding was a two-week-long process, or one-week-long process. It was elaborate. It was full of joy and celebration, feasting. There was no gloomy fasting. It would have been unthinkable for anyone at the wedding to fast. Even more unthinkable is the groomsmen fasting. Right? It doesn't make any sense. And everyone there would have known that. They would have heard Jesus say this and they would have chuckled and said, that's ridiculous. No one would fast at a wedding, especially not the groomsmen. Also, I think you probably begin to see what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees then. What they're expecting from Jesus' disciples, that they would be fasting and gloomy and mourning while their Lord or the Messiah is present with them, is as ridiculous as a groomsman fasting at his friend's wedding. How can they fast and mourn when Jesus, the promised Messiah, is right in front of them? The disciples are behaving right. They seem odd, right? Compared to the Pharisees and compared to the disciples of John, they're different, they're peculiar, but actually their behavior is perfectly normal. The Pharisees are missing the fact that what's unfolding before their eyes is the culmination, get this, the culmination of centuries of God the Father's planning. This is way more intricate, way more involved than the most elaborate two-week wedding you could ever be a part of. Here, in the flesh, is the Son of God. In Galatians 4.4, right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, All of this was the unfolding of God's perfect, meticulous, elaborate plan to enter into the world and to save His people. The Pharisees were missing the fact that the second person of the Trinity was standing before them and that His presence signaled the most momentous event in all of history. How could you fast? Why would you fast? Well, they fast because they are totally oblivious to what God is doing. The Pharisees critique Jesus' odd disciples, but the disciples are the only ones responding appropriately. The Pharisees demonstrate here that they are totally out of touch with what God is accomplishing in the world. We just think about it. It's, it's a tragedy. Here they are, the, the religious elite, those who know Scripture best. And in the fullness of time, you know, the stars had aligned as it were, and here is the Son of God in front of them. And they're wanting to fast, they're wanting to mourn. It doesn't make any sense. But the disciples, they don't know much at this point. And actually, Mark, he's hard on the disciples, and we'll see that as we go through. The disciples don't know a lot at this point. We know, at least, they know that that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that. And they're trusting that Jesus is the Messiah. They see that he has the unique authority to forgive sins and heal. They know that they can look to Jesus and trust him. They're following him in faith, 
with the knowledge that they have. They know he's the Messiah, but they don't understand the full implications of that. And, and we'll see that as we go on. Really, they won't get that until, really, Pentecost. But they could see clearly enough to know that this was not a time for fasting. Right? They knew that much. They knew that what was happening in front of them was remarkable. And they had enough common sense, at least, to say, we should celebrate what is unfolding before our eyes. And so Jesus says, it's no time to fast at the wedding. However, look at verse 20. He does say that in the future, there will be an appropriate time for his disciples to fast. Right now, they should celebrate. It's the wedding. I'm here with them. The culmination of God's plan. But there will come a day, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. This is really striking. Here is the groom. And the groomsmen are around him. Everyone is excited about the wedding. Everyone's celebrating. Everything is sort of unfolding as planned. The feast is prepared. The people are gathered. And then suddenly the groom is violently snatched away. He's taken. He's removed. And no one knows what's going on. All of a sudden in that moment, fasting and concern and prayer, all of that, that would be appropriate. Jesus says, when the groom is taken away, then you can fast. Clearly, this is a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. When will the groom be taken away? Well, it's, the language is really, it's an allusion to Isaiah 53, 8, where it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's the same wording. It's the reference here, clearly, is to the death of Jesus. He will be taken away from his people, and then they will mourn. This is the first reference or allusion to Christ's death in the Gospel of Mark. And he says, when that day comes, then fasting will be appropriate. He mentioned the same thing in John 16, on the night before his death. You remember, his disciples are gathered in the upper room, and Jesus is telling them about what is about to take place. And he writes in John 16, 20, Truly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. It's fascinating. Right now, they're rejoicing because Jesus is with them. But it's going to switch. The world's going to rejoice as they crucify me, and you then will weep and lament. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Notice, therefore, he says, verse 22, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Jesus says, the day will come when my disciples will start fasting and that's when I am crucified. But even then, 
even after the cru- that fasting, that morning, that, that season of fasting will only last three days. Then the resurrected Lord will be with them and their fasting will be short-lived, their sorrow will be turned to joy, and they'll see their resurrected Savior. But he says, that will be the appropriate time for fasting. All right, so, so why then were Jesus' disciples odd? Why were they odd? Well, at least one reason was because they understood the nature of the moment before them. This is the way Christianity is, right? We see what the world doesn't see. Isn't that true? You go to work, you you clock in, you clock out, uh, you go to work, and you can see what the world around you does not see. You see a different reality. That's what it means to be a Christian. In this moment, the disciples could see that the man before them was the incarnate Christ, was Christ, was the Messiah. They could see it. The the Pharisees, the disciples of John, they couldn't quite see it. And so, because they recognized the moment, the first advent, it led them to live differently. It led them to celebrate and not to mourn. Now, we know as the book of Mark progresses that the disciples will understand more and more until finally... The, their lives are fully shaped by all that has happened by, that Jesus accomplished rather in the first advent. And as a consequence, they will then go, after Jesus is ascended in Acts 1, they will then go and be his witnesses in all of the earth. And they'll give their lives. They'll lay their lives down for the advance of the gospel. Why? Why will they do that? Well, because they understood the nature of, of the first advent. They understood who it was that was before them on that day. And Jesus said, if you understood what was happening, right? If you understood that this is a wedding to be celebrated, this is a time of rejoicing, you would join us in the celebration. But the Pharisees, as we know, refuse. So that's the first reason the disciples are odd. But there's a second reason Jesus gives in verses 21 to 22. And that's this. The disciples then and now live peculiar lives. We're odd because we understand the nature of the new covenant. We understand the nature of the new covenant. We understand the significance of Jesus' coming in the first advent And we also understand the significance of the message he preached, which is the gospel of the new covenant. And what we're going to see in these two verses is that the gospel Jesus preached is utterly incompatible with the system the Pharisees had created. Now the Pharisees, you'll remember, are looking for a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, they're looking for someone to come along and preach and teach. They're not surprised that Jesus has emerged as a good teacher. They're happy to hear him teach. They're unhappy to hear him forgive sins because only God can do that. They're unhappy for him to break their laws because that is the means by which they really are attaining their righteousness. They would have been happy for Jesus to come and to conform to the laws that they had implemented. They 
would have been happy if Jesus would have come along and just sort of brought about a, a slight reformation of Pharisaic Judaism. As far as they could see, they had come up with a perfect system. We know, Mark 7, you might flip over there with me, Mark 7, that the Pharisees had, had laid over the Word of God their traditions and man-made rules, and they were able to keep them. And they were able to, up, to uphold the, the traditions that they established and really sort of use them as a ladder to climb all the way to heaven in their own mind. But really, we know what they had done was essentially domesticated the law and made an entirely new system of salvation. We see this in Mark 7. In Mark 7, the Pharisees, verse 1, and some of the scribes gathered around him, that's Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. Now again, here's the scenario. Why are they so weird? Why don't they just wash their hands like us? Why are they not washing their hands and joining with us in our system? Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. Notice, not obeying the principles of the Old Testament. Right? No, they, they do this according to the traditions of the elders. Verse 4, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Now that gives you a little bit of an idea of what the Pharisees had done. They had taken the law, the Word of God, and they had placed on top of it this elaborate system of works righteousness. And because it was man-made, they were able to sort of keep it. And, and they kept it, and they felt, um, the way that Jesus said it, they trusted in themselves that the, they were righteous. They were able to keep these laws and these rules that they had made and boast about their own superiority. And then verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? What's wrong with them? Why are they so peculiar? Verse 6, And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And then verse 8, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now, I wanted you to read that and see that because I want you to see that they had truly created a system of self-justification by virtue of tradition. You can be saved if you keep these rules. And that was the issue. And they wanted Jesus to come along and simply conform to the system as it was. But you know, and I know, that the message that Jesus brought was not a message that could be attached to this sort of system. The message Jesus was bringing was the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, apart from works. There's a gospel we saw in chapter 2, verse 1, where it's uh, the forgiveness of sins to those, for those who come to Him 
and faith. It's a gospel that reaches the vilest sinners. It's a gospel that, that extends far enough that no one is ever outside of its reach. The Pharisee system, on the other hand, exalted the one who kept it so that they could look down their nose at other people. It was, the Pharisee system was a system of works-based salvation. And so Jesus gives two analogies here to show that his gospel, the gospel of Jesus, cannot be sewn onto or contained within any other system. Now look at verse 21. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. Now I know, if you're like me, in your Bible reading, you're reading, and you read along, and you, you get to this, and you're like, wait, what? How, where did this come from? This doesn't seem to match. It seems out of place. But I hope now you can sort of see what Jesus is doing with this metaphor. It's really common sense. No one would take a new patch and sew it onto an old worn-out worn out garment. Why? Because once you wash the garment, the new patch shrinks and rips the old garment, making the old garment even more shoddy than it was before. No one would do that. And the point is that you can't attach the new to the old. Are you tracking with me? It's been a struggle this morning. I admit that. Are you tracking with me? This is... This is critical. You can't attach the new to the old. That's the point. If you do that, you end up losing both. It's a vital point. The religion that the Pharisees were, were propagating was a religion of works righteousness. Jesus was offering a religion, a salvation by faith alone. You can't mix the two. And this is true. This is true and extends even today. There is only, there are rather, only two ways of thinking about salvation. Works-based righteousness, where you have a system and you're good enough, you conform to it and you win heaven. Or there's the gospel of Jesus, that is salvation by faith alone. And Jesus' point here is that you can't stitch the new covenant gospel onto a system of works righteousness. It will never work. Oftentimes, people speak of religions as sort of a, a mountain, and you've got God at the top, right? You guys probably have heard this. God is at the top of the mountain. Religions are, we're all at the base of the mountain, and there are all these pathways to get up there. Buddhism is a path. Judaism is a path. Christianity is a path. That's the way that it's, it's conveyed. All the paths are essentially the same. You just want to pick a path and do your best to get up there. That is not the gospel. Now, Christianity is utterly different than that. The gospel is that God leaves the top of the mountain and comes to you when you were dead. Now, you could never even walk up the pathway anyway. He comes to you and He gives you life. That's the gospel. And you can't. It makes no sense to try to weave Christianity into another system. If you do that, you end up losing both. And that's Jesus' point. Look at verse 22. He essentially makes the same point with a different analogy. 
No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. In the ancient world, wine was stored in containers made from fresh animal skins that were sewn together and sealed. As the new wine began to ferment, gases would be released, causing pressure in the container. But as long as the leather was new, it could stretch to accommodate the pressure from the wine. The same way, the legalistic system the Pharisees had created didn't have the elasticity to contain what Jesus was bringing. This old system would not work. It couldn't contain the gospel of salvation by faith alone. Now, I, let me just be clear here. I want to I be very clear. If you haven't realized this already, the old garment, the old wineskins, that is not the Old Testament. It's not the Old Testament. It's not the Torah. It's not the law. And we read earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law or the Old Testament. He came to do what? Fulfill it. Jesus is the fulfillment. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. So what is the old garment and what is the old wineskin? Well, it's the legalistic, pharisaical system of of self-based, self-justification, works righteousness. Jesus' gospel, the gospel of the new covenant, cannot be mixed with any system that adds works. It can't be mixed with Buddhism. It can't be mixed with Mormonism. It can't be mixed with any religion. Jesus' gospel, the gospel of the new covenant, is absolute and utterly exclusive. Right? You believe that? Now, how does that How does that fare in our contemporary situation? Not good. You can be friends with everyone at work. You can be friends with your entire neighborhood. As long as you just mingle Jesus into their Buddhism. Or as long as you don't push Christ on them. Right? I remember when I was in seminary, I was invited to go to an interfaith dialogue. I'd encourage you never to do that. (laughs) I had the opportunity, actually. uh, It was me and a couple of other guys. And we were, I mean, the only conservatives, not just conservatives, we were the only people who believed the Bible was the Word of God at all. And it was um, Christians, uh, Jews, and Muslims, Christians from really this region, uh, and Muslims, they were from New York, and then the, the Jews were from uh, the West Coast. But we had this opportunity to essentially stage a, a religious service. And I was asked to be the preacher. So we had 20 minutes, I think it was. Uh, 20 minutes, I, I got to preach, so we had uh, music, and we essentially just a scaled-down version of a worship service, just so that our Jewish friends and our Muslim friends could see what uh, what it was like to, you know, to come to Calvary on a Sunday. Well, I mean, I was, I think I was a, maybe a junior. I was, I was working on my MDiv. And 
I was preaching that week, the prior week I had preached on Romans 5. And so I thought, well, I'll just do a scaled-down version of Romans 5, talk about justification by faith alone, and I'll preach and it'll be great. <laughs> I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I wasn't that naive. <clears throat> so I got up. I, I, you know, of course, I had to give some context, Romans 1, 2, and 3. You know, none is righteous. The Jews are guilty. The Gentiles are guilty. We're all guilty. Uh, we all going, we're all going to hell. There's only one way of salvation, and that's Jesus Christ. But look, this is what he's done for us. It's wonderful. He justifies sinners like you and me. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. We're all sinners. But God is incredibly gracious in Christ. And I went on and on and on. You know, as I'm preaching, I can see the temperature rising, you know, throughout the audience. And there's a certain group of Jewish sophers, they're scribes. Uh, they were ladies, uh, and so they were on the the very liberal spectrum of Judaism. And I could especially see them being worked up. And I remember I preached, and I shut my Bible, and uh, you know, no one says anything. You know, I become like a pariah in that moment. <clears throat> and those two girls, there was a group of them, but two of those girls, I remember they stormed down the aisle at me, and she looked at me. She didn't spit on me, but it was like right there at it. <laughs> and she said, how could you? And I said, I, I, I don't know what you're... And she said, how could you? And the other girl came up and said, how dare you? She's full of anger. And I said, I, I, I am not sure what you're talking about. And they just stormed away. And all the Christians stormed away right behind them. <clears throat> I mean, the Christians, they were... I will not tell you what seminary they were from. Um, but we have radically different views. It was liberal Christianity. And... I remember my friends were sitting on the front row, and I sat down, and I said, well, what did I get us into here? <laughs> and we all kind of chuckled, and they went their way, and we went over to the cafeteria, and I walked in, and I mean, everyone is looking at me like I have a, you know, a unicorn horn or something, and, and no one wants to sit by me, no one wants to talk to me, and I sit down, I start talking to a few guys, and they're just, you know, it's small talk, the weather, you know, yada, 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 and they're all looking at me, I knew it, so I, I okay, well, this is just... This is the first night. We'll see how the next night goes. I made my way back to my room where we all stay in the same dorm. And um, I just sat down. I had my Bible open. And I thought, okay, this is the first time I've ever experienced anything like this. This is incredible. Um, and I was actually kind of rejoicing at it. And um, the rabbi, he comes and he sits down across from me. Uh, he's a really nice guy, young guy. Uh, and he said, how are you doing? And I said, man, I'm doing great. You know, the Lord is good, he's faithful, I love Jesus, and all is well. And he said, well, how are you really doing? And I said, well, I mean, this is hard, but I'm doing okay. And he said, well, I I think I know what your problem is. I said, okay. I said, what's my problem? And he said, well, it's a problem I I encountered when I was in Louisiana, he said. Um, He said, it's, you know, there's a type of person out there who believes that truth with a capital T actually exists. And I think that's your problem. And I said, well, yeah, that's my problem. <laughs> I said, you don't believe that? And he said, it can't. He don't. I said, so you don't want me to become, you don't want me to become Jewish? He said, absolutely not. And I said, wait, you don't want me to become Jewish? You don't want me to you know, be convinced that you're right and follow uh, your principles and all of that? And he said, no, 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 no. You Christians have it easy. You don't have to do anything. Just believe in Jesus and all is well. Don't come over here to become a Jew. And I laughed and I said, uh, you know, I, I talked with, with him about that. But that stuck with me. 
He said, I know what your problem is. You believe that there's truth with a capital T. This is the issue. This is what's going on. If you believe there's truth with a capital T, if you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, if you believe that he really came, the first advent is true, if you believe the new covenant gospel that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, if you go out and proclaim that, you will be odd. (laughs) You will be peculiar. Everyone will look at you just like they looked at the disciples here and say, what is wrong with these people? Why don't they just get with the program? Why don't they just conform? We're Americans. We're all in this together. Freedom of religion. Don't, Don't preach your gospel to your neighbor. Friends, if you take the first advent seriously, you take the new covenant gospel seriously, you will inevitably be odd because we exist in a culture where religions are, you know, are like the salad bar. Right? You just pick what you want and make your own. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. It won't work that way. If you try to sew me on to any religion, it'll explode. The religions of self-righteousness, of, of works righteousness, they can't contain what we have. Therefore, we have to be distinct. We have to distinguish ourselves from all other systems, all other ways, and that will make us always the third group. We'll always be the odd group. But you know what, friends? That's what we're called to be. Matthew 5, salt and light. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is powerful that it accomplishes its purpose every time it's unfolded, every time it's taught. We thank you, Lord, that even in situations that are complicated, challenging, situations where we're confronted or we're called on to stand out, you continue to uphold us and sustain us every step along the way. Lord, we thank you that your gospel is sufficient, that it saves to the uttermost those who come to you. And Lord, we thank you above all that we have the new covenant promises of the gospel. We thank you that Christ left heaven to come to earth. Although he was rich, he became poor for our sake. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would give us increasing confidence to stand as peculiar people in a world that is increasingly conformed to one another. Lord, may we stand as salt and light and be found faithful to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.